and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, everybody, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. And uh, I wonder, have you ever heard uh, about the siren's song in mythology? As I talk about it here a little bit, maybe it'll uh, jog your memory. But as the story goes, the man named Ulysses, uh, he had won many great battles in the past and had almost always put the good of others before his own desires. But a new day had come and Ulysses uh, seemed to have forgotten the former days and he kind of set out for a while to live a life of uh, ease and pleasure. At length his companions were able to get him back on track there and he received their admonition gratefully. Uh, Circa aided their departure and instructed them how to pass safely as they sailed by the coast of the Sirens. The Sirens were sea nymphs who had the power of charming by their song all who heard them. Now this is probably where it's starting to ring a bell for you a little bit. The stories of the sailors going by and these beautiful songs coming from some mermaid type creature and stuff, you know. And uh, what happened is this charming songs would, would call to the sailors and the unhappy mariners were irresistibly impelled to cast themselves into the sea to their destruction. So they'd listen to this song. It was so beautiful. It would distract them from the course they were on. They'd get off course and they'd wind up in the sea and dying and stuff. Well, Circa said, here's what you need to do, Ulysses, as you pass through this area of temptation. You need to have you and all your seamen fill their ear ears with wax so you can't hear the song in the first place. And, uh, but Ulysses, you're a leader. Uh, you need to know what's out there. So what you need to do is be tied to the mast and with your ears able to hear and tell your men, no matter how much you say, untie me and let me go to the siren song, uh, just uh, they need to be instructed not to let that happen. Whatever you say or do, don't release Ulysses till we pass through the silence island. So Ulysses obeyed those instructions filled the ears of his people with wax, and he bound himself with cords. They bound him up with cords. And as they approached the Sirens Island, the sea was calm, and over the waters came that beautiful song, so ravishing, attractive. Ulysses struggled to get loose. He told the men, I, I changed my mind. Let me out of here. Let me loose. Let me go to the siren song. Let me obey that call. And, uh, but they remembered their orders. They didn't let it happen, and they got him to the other side. And as they uh, got through that uh, temptation zone, the song was a little quieter and they kept on their course and got to the other side. But the reality was that many had succumbed to that song and uh, ruined uh, what they had going and got so off course that they struggled to get back on course again. And that's a perfect little story. Uh, now, I know if you ever listened to Charles Spurgeon, the great British pe preacher, they didn't have TV, Netflix, uh, hoo, hoo etc. And so many of the things they used to illustrate uh, scripture sermons in those days were those stories from mythology like that. And uh, it's a great metaphor for the challenges Christians face today. 
Satan does not come dressed up in a red suit with a pitchfork, you know, uh, like the caricature of old. He comes as an angel of light in a beautiful form. And like the siren sings, he sings beautifully, Come away, come away, come away and lose your soul. And God's people and others get distracted from what he has for them. He's a master fisherman. Some of you guys like to go fishing and you've caught good fish and stuff like that. You don't just put the hook in the water. You put bait on it, right? And you hide the hook. You bait it in such a way that you're hiding the hook. And so they see that beautiful bait. I'll tell you, we were at my, uh, uh, for my father-in-law's 80th birthday, we were over in Tennessee and his uh, brother has a place right on the, uh, he, he's got a lake right there at his house. And uh, he said, here, just hide that hook with a, with a hot dog. And man, we was reeling them catfish in. They love the hot dog, you know, uh, and we was reeling them in. Satan's a master fisherman. He shows you the bait, he hides the hook, but you go for the bait and you get the hook, right? And the fisherman has you, and Satan is like that. Last time when we, in the book of James, we were looking at Pastor James talk about the power of words that come out of our mouth. In chapter 3, he says very uh, specific things about how little words can start a big forest fire. You know, a little spark starts a forest fire. Your words can start a lot of trouble in your life, your family, the church life, etc. And it, that can happen in a nation too. And one of the comparisons that James made was words being like a rudder of a ship that sets the direction of the ship. So a rudder's a little thing, but it can set you in a direction that's off course. And our words are like that. But... A rudder is an inanimate object, right? Whether it's made of wood or steel or whatever. Uh, there has to be a helmsman who turns the rudder, right? A captain steering the rudder to do what it says. And so James peels the onion, so to speak, back a layer. And he was talking about words last time. But he's going to talk about what it is that makes us speak words that mess things up or are a blessing. A blessing or a curse. Uh, what is inside of us that makes that come out. Um, and so the rudder just follows the direction of the helmsman uh, when he turns the wheel. And he's turning the wheel based on a compass and a heading he wants to do. So he's got where he wants to go, a compass with true north on it. And so he's making his decisions based on that. And as he does, he turns the rudder, the rudder turns the ship. And what James is doing is extending this analogy out with the words being like the rudder, the helmsman being like the decisions we're making, and based on a heading that we have. Uh, and it's really good stuff. So for the human, what comes out of the mouth is just a reflection of what's in the head and in the heart, and which direction the wheel is going based on whether its destination is heaven or whether its destination is hell. James 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you, Pastor James asks? Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there." But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and full of good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the message is staying the course amidst Satan's siren songs. Let's pray. 
Father, we know that there are a lot of siren songs uh, from Satan in this world that we live in. So many things that pull us away and distract us. And I thank you for how the author of Hebrews talked about not only the need to lay aside sins, but also every other encumbrance to uh, keeping our heading with you, bearing true north with you, Lord, and your call in our lives. Uh, sometimes things that are good for others aren't good for us, Lord God. And there's so many things that distract. And Lord, uh, as a pastor, I am just really hurting right now because I look around and see so many sheep that are so distracted by so many things. And whether our folk mean to do it or not, just other things come before you right now. And that is a dangerous place for your people to be in, God. We are distracted. We are listening to the siren songs. We're talking about everything primarily in Jesus and your gospel secondarily, Lord. Won't you reset us? Thank you for how Pastor James was writing to a people during a time of distraction, a time of displacement, a time that was not like the church experience they'd had together in Jerusalem. They were in diverse places and they were scattered abroad. And Lord, you wrote to them through James, the Holy Spirit. You used James to get them on track and uh, be about your business wherever they were, God. And during these days of distraction and displacement, may we get the message, Lord God, and practice basic and true Christianity by faith. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, great little passage, this one. Two kinds of wisdom are contrasted, a wisdom that's from above and a wisdom that's from below. And uh, verse 13, he comes right out of the gate and he lets us know that true wisdom is seen in our conduct, our conduct. So verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his words are done in the meekness of wisdom. So it starts with the word wise, and then it gives you the word understanding. He asks, who is wise, who is understanding? The word for wise there in verse 13 is the sophist word. You, uh, actually, I know uh, Patty's over in choir. She's got a granddaughter named Sophia. W Sophia is wisdom, right? So Sophie is the word, sophos is the word there. It was a technical term also used uh, for teachers among the Jews. So... Um, in the Greek language, sophos for them, would have, they would have thought about their teachers. And remember, chapter 3 starts with, don't let many of you be teachers, knowing as such, you're going to get a stricter judgment. James is basically asking, who are the teachers among you? Uh, and the sense of it is, it's a kind of rhetorical question. He's saying, who should be the teachers among you? Having dealt with what they say, now he's looking at what they do. So, wisdom for the Greeks meant philosophy, speculative knowledge. But for Jews, it meant skillfully applying, applying knowledge to everyday life. It wasn't just enough to have head discussions. You weren't a wise person unless it showed up in the practical uh, living that you did. I think of my father-in-law. Uh, he um, is uh, one of the wisest people I know. Didn't do too well in school learning, hated most moments of it, you know. But when you talk about practical wisdom, you talk to him, you're talking to a practically wise man. And he certainly has taught me much over the years. So he's writing to Jewish Christians scattered in Greek cities, a Greek-speaking world. And then he uses the word understanding to go along with wise. The word for understanding, it's only here in the New Testament. 
and refers to a specialist that applies their expertise in practical situations. So he's specifically talking about how if you know something from the Lord, it ought to show up in your conduct. Um, now, he's already said we stumble in many ways. So he's already struck the note of grace throughout this whole book. He's talking about a perfect standard that we're all shooting for, but we know we're going to fall short. But just the fact that we're going to fall short doesn't mean we shoot for the perfect standard. And so he's teaching us to apply our faith in every area of life and really challenging ourselves. It's not just enough to be great in seven of the eight areas of the Christian life. <laughs> just to use that as an example, if there's an area we're deficient in, we need to work on that area and let the Holy Spirit apply the faith to that area also. We um, need to be proficient in that. I mentioned that my wife is a nurse and it's not enough for her to do her job mostly well. You know, if she does part of her job wrong, people could die. And so we need to give attention to every area of living for God's glory, even as we understand it's all about God's grace. If we have wisdom from above, it will show itself by staying on God's course. Wisdom from above from heaven. But if our wisdom's from below, from earth and hell, it will show itself in selfish decisions. He's giving us a basic rule here that when you see people act selfishly, then that is inconsistent with professing Christ, even if they really are a Christ follower. So, having led this section with verse 13, Pastor James walks us through different marks of a person who's off course. So, verses 14 through 16, this shows you you're off course. And verses 17 and 18, this shows you if you're on course. And I'm sticking with that sailing analogy, although he's pulling in horses and bridles in this chapter 3, and he's pulling in uh, ship analogies too with rudders and things. So we're just looking at different ways of trying to get it across. The first mark he mentions in verse 14 of a person who's off course is they are demonstrating bitter envy. They are demonstrating jealousy. We could say envy. We could say jealousy. Do you see him say that there in verse 14? He says, but if you have bitter envy, um, ourselves are, uh, you know, old nature that um, Christ has redeemed us. So now we've got a new nature to go with the old nature. There's an us that puts ourselves first and puts ourselves before God and puts ourselves before others. We regularly have this daily decision to die to self. Jesus said you need to die daily to self and what self wants and live for what God wants and His purposes in our life. What does the self love to do? The self loves to have first place and resents when others are in the spotlight. Now, I coached 30 seasons, 25 of soccer and 5 of wrestling. And wrestling is an individual thing, but there's a team component to it also. And so I had lots of, and, and you know, I played uh, sports uh, my entire life and still last night uh, played basketball and played four games and won three. And it felt pretty good at 52 to be out there with the youngins doing that. Uh, and today I upped my AFLAC policy uh, to make sure that uh, things are covered when it doesn't go so well. Um, but I've seen many talented teams self-destruct, self-destruct because players didn't want to share the spotlight with their teammates. They wanted it all. They wanted to win and be number one and never do anything selflessly. And so if a pass would put the team in a better position to score, they would go ahead and try to take a bad shot themselves. And in selfishness, I've seen teams lose games and lose playoff things they could have won because they didn't work together as a team. Uh, just as an aside, when I coached uh, Grace Christian, uh, one thing I tried to 
uh, in, uh, let we, we had a, a few players that really wanted to fit in this selfish category, and we kind of came up with a mantra that helped, you know, a little mantra. A goal for grace is a goal for me, and a goal for me is a goal for grace, right? In other words, if your teammate scores a goal, you're also winning, right? You're also going the right direction. And uh, if you're the one that scores the goal for the team, you've also done something, in a sense, for yourself, but also for the team. And so, uh, but that's also, as a pastor now for 20 plus years and in ministry now for over 30 years, I've seen the same thing happen in churches. Many times that old spirit of jealousy and self-love, self-promotion gets in there. And uh, it shows itself between churches, between ministries, and within ministries also. Uh, I've seen it where long-term members resent the attention shown to new members and non-members and those things, you know. Uh, last night, uh, Dan Stevens, um, Edwin Stevens is here in the youth group tonight. His dad, Dan, who's a neat guy from over the board in North Carolina, does chaplaincy for both Reedsville and um, one of the other high schools over there. He gave a devotion and he gave it on the prodigal son and it was so good, uh, his devotion there. And he mentioned about, uh, you know, um, how God loved the prodigal anyway and brought him back in even though he'd already squandered his part of the inheritance. But one thing that's always struck me about that story is that when we, we often criticize the older brother there, but since the younger son had already spent his inheritance, for him to be back in the father's house meant the older brother's inheritance was going to get cut into every day the son lived there. And uh, sometimes we think that way in, in church. If we do resources for those that really can't do much for us, then humbug to that, you know. And so it, it is a real challenge to our flesh to think of ourselves as being on mission with God and really trying to reach the next person through the door uh, and the other people that are out there that we haven't reached before and those different things. And, and, and we've got a, it, it's a direct confrontation to what we want church to be, to think in terms of great commission church versus what's in it for me, consumer church, right? I mean, it just is directly like that. Well, I've seen it that way. I've seen choir members get upset because that one gets to sing more, and I personally think I sing better than that one that gets to sing more, you know? And I've seen members feed into that by encouraging that prima donna behavior with people. Oh. Uh, you don't sing as much as you should. You're the best one we got. A lot of those other ones can't sing. You ought to sing more. And, and that, uh, that envy, that jealousy gets stirred up. I've seen Sunday school teachers resent growth in other church, in other classes. And pastors get together and they ask how you're doing and they hope they'll get, uh, the, the, at the end of the day, when everybody shared their stories, they come out as the church that's doing the best, right? The, uh, baptizing more, getting more money in, building more stuff, etc., and uh, oftentimes there's jealousy that way as well. Well, what mark goes along with jealousy? He goes into another mark. He talks about bitter envy, and then he says self-seeking in your heart. So a second mark of uh, the wrong kind of wisdom, being off course with God, is being self-seeking. When we are seeking our own glory, we don't want to honor others, and we're not honoring God as we do that. So we're filled with selfish ambition, and we put our way first. To make ourselves look good, oftentimes somebody else has to look bad, and we will push another out of the way to get to what we want in our self-seeking. Um, and the problem is not ambition. Um, 
when the disciples were fighting about which one was the greatest, this, that's an example of this, right? When they were fighting over which one is greatest, Jesus didn't say, ambition is bad. Uh, no, in fact, he next gave them a challenge. Hey, it's, you guys want to be the greatest? Let me tell you how to be the greatest in my eyes, in God's eyes. He who is great among you will be the servant of all. He completely changed the definition of what greatness looks like. God's watching to see those that see a need and meet a need, uh, sometimes in front of the scenes, sometimes behind the scenes. And that is something that we can all uh, try to be ambitious toward, right? Glorifying God through the things we do to advance His kingdom. Uh, there should be an ambition there, but the ambition shouldn't be for us. It becomes selfish ambition when it's about my glory uh, instead of God's glory, and somebody's got to lose for me to win. And I have, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I saved when I was 17 years old. It came as news to me that churches would fight each other to try to uh, build a better mousetrap to have pull members from that church to this church. And, you know, when... You know, to me, the whole thing should be more like the ships in Dunkirk. There was, uh, you know, they had to rescue the soldiers, right? And so they had some big boats, they had some sailboats, they had some little tugboats and stuff. They all went over and to the extent able, helped some of the sailors and soldiers get from where they were in danger from the Germans back to England to fight another day. And at that point, all that mattered was, this one got five, that's great, that helped. This one got 500, that's great, that helped. Ooh, that one had 50, that's great, that helped. And um, it came as news to me that churches would jockey for position and say, well, we would never treat you like that over at our church. <laughs> and uh, we would never uh, bring those kind of people in that would mess up the way your church is going over here, you know. And so come on over here to ours. And yet that stuff happens all the time. And uh, he says, don't be like that. It's good to want to win souls to Christ, give lots of money to missions, meet lots of needs in the name of Christ. But we're doing, if we're doing it for our glory and we want our church to look better than another church rather than think of ourselves as co-workers all bringing in a harvest, we've got a problem. Well, what other mark of being off course goes along with jealousy of others and self-seeking? Uh, boasting, right? That's the next one. They're caught up in boasting. Boasting says, look at what I have done. I've accomplished more than these others around me. Praise me for who I am. Praise me for what I've done. And oftentimes we try to get people through, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of humble sounding words. We're not really humble, but humble sounding words to pat us on the back, you know. Uh, did you see what happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Good for you, Danny. Good for you, John. Good for you. You know, and uh, we are boasting about that. Well, Pastor James calls what all this is at the end of verse 14. He says, If you have better envy and self-seeking your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So what does uh, it mean to have these things going on? It's lying against the truth. And the reason it's lying against the truth is, if I accomplish anything based on a talent I have, God gave me the talent to do it. If I do anything based on a spiritual gift that I have, I didn't do anything that God didn't enable me to do, right? And so really, what am I going to boast about? Uh, you know, um, uh, it's God that gives us the life, the breath, the abilities, the spiritual gifts, all those different things. And so all of it should be, I'm glad that song blessed you if I'm a singer. Praise God that, you know, uh, he, he worked in that moment to bring that blessing to you. It's all deflecting that back to him. Uh, did 
Him stirring my heart to give to meet that need, bless you and meet that need, that's wonderful. Thank God that He's given me the ability to, uh, to make that money and to meet this need now and all these different things, right? Um, when we're resenting others in the body of Christ, seeking to make ourselves look good and them bad and boasting about our greatness, James makes a simple point. None of that came from above. None of that came from above. Sinful me first behavior comes from below. And he says it so well from our fallen natures egged on by fallen demonic forces. He sums up man's wisdom with three statements. He says in verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above. This didn't come down from your God, so don't blame him uh, for uh, carnal behavior in your own life and the life of the church. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. It's earthly, meaning it acts like this life is all there is, like the animal kingdom. It's natural, it's absorbed in doing what feels right, sensual, natural. And demonic, it's energized by the evil one. And verse 16 shows us what being off course spiritually leads to. It says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So being off course spiritually leads to confusion uh, and practicing evil things. Practicing evil things. Uh, confusion could be understood to be disorder also. I know... Um, Ronnie Motley loves to share when he does his prayer email and when you're talking to him, the verse 1 Corinthians 14, 40, speaking in tongues had caused great confusion in the church there and the Apostle Paul in his teaching gets a hold of it and says basically that's not for your gathered time together. You might be able to speak Russian to a Russian sailor. Great. Praise God. If that happens, God did it, you know. Uh, but he really gives severe restrictions to the practice in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and then he sums up the whole discussion he's been having by saying, let everything be done decently and in order, right? For God is not the author of confusion. And uh, when we're off course spiritually, we often lead to disorder around us and confusion and every kind of evil thing could be practiced. Um, and of course, our headlines are filled with such stories of people getting off track and uh, mass carnage resulting in churches, in Christian universities, in ministries, uh, in communities, in the nation and in the world uh, because of what me first type attitude gives. Blows up marriages, blows up uh, families, blows up a lot of stuff. The book of Judges shows us what can happen in an entire nation when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, right? Uh, and my goodness, when you read Judges, there's a couple chapters there toward the end and go, how in the world are we still in Israel with this kind of thing happening? You know, a lady getting chopped up and cut into different things and sent to, to try to provoke the whole nation to understanding what the kind of sin that's going on in the country and that sort of thing. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did not bow to uh, the higher authority of God. Um, the result's going to be disorder, and with disorder comes all kinds of evil things, and we're certainly seeing that. Anarchy results when a person asserts their own rights above the right of others they are in covenant with and reject the mutual submission of Ephesians 5.21. Um, one thing that's often missed, uh, you know, we know that Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands, right? 
And so we oftentimes think of a tight order in the marriage relationship, in parenting, and in the worker-boss relationship in Ephesians 5 and 6. But the whole passage before you ever get into that has Ephesians 5.21 that says, submitting yourselves to Christ in the fear of God, right? So there's a mutual submission to one another in the body of Christ between husband and wife, uh, so there is a sense in which the husband submits to the wife, even as the wife submits to her husband when you need a tie-breaking vote, right? Because it's a society of two. But the same thing happens. Parents have a responsibility before the Lord, submitting to the Lord. And that's why a child is to obey their parents, but it's not a unilateral submitting to the authority because it says, in the Lord. As a child, when I first turned to Christ in, at the age of 17, in the decade after that, both my mom and my dad wanted me to do things, you know, that the Lord wouldn't have me do. And my mom's the kind of person she'd just throw out there. It says to obey your parent in the Lord. And I was like, Mom, in the Lord. You're asking me to do something my faith won't allow. Can't do it, right? And so the boss is over the worker, but the boss is under their heavenly father. And so everybody is to submit. And you'll have a more orderly anything if everyone knows that they themselves are accountable to God, right? Uh, so, anarchy results when we assert our own rights above the rights of others and the covenant of submission, mutual submission that Ephesians 5.21 talks about. Um, wow. Every evil thing, every evil thing, there are things that we all say, that's evil. But James uses a word here that uh, is very interesting. Um, the Greek word for thing is pragma. We get our word pragmatic from it. And there's nothing sadder than seeing a person who you thought was a serious Christian get off course away from all that really matters in this life and the next um, because they are thinking pragmatically. The ends justifies the means. Um, and so... Uh, when we get off track with God, then oftentimes we'll do what seems right to us, what seems to work for us, and we'll justify all manner of sin. And that's what Pastor James is saying. He's saying, hey, as you get out there, church that was in Jerusalem together, now you're scattered everywhere, you'll tend to get into uh, thinking that uh, it's okay because of the situation you're in, or it's okay because uh, you're not around the strong church that was back in Jerusalem. And he says, don't fall into that kind of thinking. One time I did a study and I counted down the top 10 songs in hell, you know, and I was uh, brought in some of the ones you'd think about, you know, from uh, music history and stuff like that. But I said the number two song in hell will be Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, right? Because it celebrates at the end of the day, whether I got it right or wrong, I can at least say I did it my way. And that's the problem. People in hell will say that. Well, what's interesting is, you know what the number one song in hell will be? The same as the number one song in heaven. According to Philippians chapter 2, there's a time where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those are tongues that, you know, it says every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, Right? So the number one song in hell actually is the number one song in heaven. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. But those in hell, it'll be too late 
to do anything about it, but they will know forever that they shouldn't have done it their way. They should have done it Yahweh, God's way, right? Um, so pretty cool. Well, in contrast to this quote-unquote wisdom from, above, from below that is selfish and it's jealous of other successes and um, boasts uh, about what we can do apart from God, um, there is a heavenly wisdom that verses 17 and 18 point us to. And I have the heading here, the church's compass points to our true north. Look how he says it, verse 17, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy, and it's full of good fruits. Without partiality, James has already talked in chapter 2 about not expressing partiality, but loving all people, and, and being without hypocrisy. And then I love verse 18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A compass points north and you use it to chart your course. That's what James is calling for here. True wisdom points north also, points north to heaven. Verse 13, it asks, who's the wise and understanding person among you? Well, he's compelling us, prove it by staying on course. So God's conduct is seen in being a person broken and bridled by the Holy Spirit. Um, I love how he um, has uh, talked about um, how a horse is so powerful, but it's wild and not useful until it's broken by somebody and bridled and harnessed by somebody, and then you can do it. For us to be useful to God, we have to be broken by God of this self-will, this me-first attitude, and we need to be harnessed and that's where the word meekness comes in there. Uh, meekness is power under control. It's, it's like humility, but it's more, uh, it's more than that. Uh, Moses was the meekest man on earth. And what it meant is that Moses was totally devoted in his life to what God wanted being first place in his life. And that's always good to turn us around to a question to us. Do I want more than anything what God wants for my life rather than what I want to do for Him? Do I really want to follow Him as Lord or do I want Him to just be my cheerleader? I do what I want and hope He is okay with it. And, you know, and we all know, don't we, uh, that anybody in the Word knows there's something hollow about Joel Osteen when he basically preaches that you should do what you want and that God will bless it and makes God your cheerleader instead of your Lord. We know there's something hollow about that. James says, don't get out there and be fluffy in your faith where you do what you want to do and then justify it by sprinkling some Bible verses around it. You know, He says, you know that's not how we taught it. God's conduct is seen when you're broken and bridled by the Holy Spirit. Um, so what does Psalm 51 say? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Um, when we finally realize that God wants to use us, and uh, we humbly submit to Him. Um, does that describe your relationship to the Holy Spirit? That you're like the horse and the Holy Spirit's the rider. And when He wants you to go at a, a jog, you're going at a jog. When it's a sprint, it's a sprint. When it's an all-up gallop and the direction He's pointing to, can He turn you uh, with, uh, as you go through a day? And um, I loved that show Person of Interest when it was on. Remember that? And, you know, there's th stories of the Secret Service, you know, they're standing there, but they've got this little earpiece in, right? 
and the earpiece, there's somebody else that can give them instruction, like look over here at this. And um, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us if we've been in the Word of God. We go through our day and all of a sudden it's, hey, stop and help that person. Um, you hear of a need and go, huh, I bet if I coordinated with my Sunday school class, we could meet that need together, you know. Um, and so he is directing you just like that rather than you saying, oh, fooey, I don't want to get involved in that, you know. Don't ask, don't tell, you know, <laughs> etc. But it's like that. So are you that prize stallion or are you a wild horse of no practical benefit to God or people? Well, he ends this passage, this chapter in James 3, by giving qualities of a Christian who's staying on course. The first one is moral purity. He's already said that pure religion is to keep yourself unstained from the things of the world. It's about sexual integrity, but it's about other things as well that relate to our pure and innocent relationship with the Lord where we, we love Him back and we um, uh, seek to keep ourselves out of the briars and brambles that the siren songs of life want to get into us. A person that's got this purity, uh, wants, what God wants for me comes first in my life. It contrasts with self-promotion. It, it wants what God wants, period. And so it humbly says, well, God's looking out for me by instructing me in this. And so, you know, there's a, a built-in hostility in the human spirit to the commands of God. And that has come down through the fall in the way Psalm 2 presents it, us shaking our fist at heaven. And even among religious people, it can be like that, a deep resentment. John Piper said when he wrote the book, What Jesus Demands of the World, he asked his daughter-in-law what she thought about that title, and she said, I feel oppressed by that title, you know. And uh, he, I think he boils it down to, he, he wants you to love him back, you know. And so if we can get in our minds that the commands of Jesus are actually for our betterment because he wants what's best for Danny Campbell more than Danny Campbell wants what's best for Danny Campbell. And so I'm always the winner when I do what his word says and, and, and it always be best for me. And that's the fundamental area Satan's always trapping us off. God's holding, it's all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, uh, God's holding out on you. Uh, you're going to, you know, it's going to be so hard to follow him. And if you do what he says, you're, you're, you're going to miss out on what would happen if you just engaged in that sin, right? And he does that with us just like he did it with Adam and Eve. And we oftentimes get off track with that, at least for a while in our faith. So it starts there. If you're staying on course, you, you want what God wants for you. Well, how about the second thing here? He says, it's then peaceable. And I wrote the words here, calming presence. Doesn't the world need some calming presences right now, you know? Uh, and God has put His Spirit in us so that we'd have settled hearts, so that we'd know He's in control in a world that seems out of control, so that any discussion we have would be reined in by the knowledge that I need to bring Jesus into this conversation and the truth of God's Word into this. Because, yeah, that's bad, and that's bad, and that's bad, but God is good, and God's in control, and God will work through me. And so, you know, I think about how uh, God works. Uh, we're all so saddened with this uh, deal um, at Liberty, and Jerry Falwell Jr. having to step down, and there being apparently some seedy, maybe, details uh, around that. And um, Channel 13 interviewed Brandon Pickett. Uh, who was a staff member here one time, you know, and is the vice, uh, he's basically second in command at the state organization we're part of. And he said, there's no joy here. There is relief here, 
because something need, like this needed to happen and stuff. But there's no, yay, he's done it. And, and then he called for prayer for the family. Very calming presence Brandon had. And he also said it's just critical in this role that if you're going to be training champions for Christ, you need to be seeking to be a champion for Christ, right? And just in that one interview, whoever got to hear it, Brandon helped reset the narrative. Our homecoming speaker this year is going to be Alan McFarland. He was one of the very first African-American students at Liberty University. And uh, he is the current pastor president of the 700 Church Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia. He is also um, the, was the vice chairman of the board at Liberty. And when the chairman of the board became the acting president, he became the interim acting chairman of the board. Boy, he's had a rough two or three days, hasn't he, because of the things they've had to deal with as a board. He lives in Portsmouth. He's had to camp out in uh, Lynchburg there. But Brother Allen himself has a very calming presence. He's trying to bring peace to a situation. He did it a couple months ago when uh, Junior, uh, President Jerry Falwell Jr. had been involved in some insensitive racial sentiments and things like that. And it just kept getting worse and worse and inflaming the racial tensions in the Liberty alumni community and the student community as well. And Alan McFarland, our dear brother, uh, actually said, picked up the phone and called uh, President Falwell Jr. and said, I need to come and share my heart with you. And he spent two hours with him. And later that day, the first humility was seen out of that man's life in several years as he issued an apology and it brought the whole temperature down because of this wisdom that's from above, this peaceable, calming presence. Uh, and God has called you to be like that. It's very easy to be part, get, get involved in something where things get stirred up and just ratchet it up and ratchet it up and ratchet it up. But to bring calm to a situation with the wisdom that God's given you is a very powerful thing. And Liberty will be the better for all this good leadership from alumni and others as it goes forward. I think their best days are uh, even yet to come. Well, the next thing is gentleness with others, right? Gentleness with others. Um, so he says, it's first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. Uh, John MacArthur defines gentleness as sweet reasonableness, you know, which John MacArthur is not always known for, but sweet reasonableness. It makes one kind and considerate in dealings with others, not difficult to live and work with. Now, please understand that there's a difference between being nice and being kind. Uh, a gentle person that is speaking on behalf of, uh, you know, God's working through them in a moment, they can be kind uh, and, and uh, maybe they're not nice or appear to be nice. A lot of people aim at niceness, but Christians are trying to be kind. And uh, you say, well, Danny, what's the difference there? Being nice many times will keep you silent, passively silent, uh, because you don't want to rock the boat. So let's say... Uh, that uh, there's a time you need to rebuke a fellow believer. We live in an area where a lot of folks make very racially insensitive comments, and many of them go to church. And somebody that loves the Lord also will hear them saying that, and in niceness they say, well, I just won't weigh in there because they won't like it if I say something there. So niceness will be passive and not speak in that moment. But somebody filled with the Holy Spirit uh, will be kind even as they say, I need to talk to you about that remark you just made. Uh, you say you believe that all people are created in God's image and likeness, yet racial insensitivity just came out of your mouth. 
And you can be kind even as you enter that moment. You can be gentle in that, whereas niceness alone will just be passive and, and lose that opportunity to uh, get to a better place. Um, and so very important not to uh, you know, be passive when people are saying stuff around us that winds up being like what he's already talked about earlier in chapter 2, poison in the air that doesn't help anything going forward. Well, he mentions also a willingness to yield. A willingness to yield, he says, willing to yield. Um, by the way, all believers have this if they've truly become believers because we got saved by yielding, didn't we? Uh, we got saved by saying, if I'm going to go to heaven, I need to repent. I need to first uh, homo legeo, that means to say the same things about. We use it as the word confess. All of us got saved by acknowledging our need based on our sin and sin nature that he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. He has me dead to rights. He said, don't do this. I've done this. Uh, I'm a sinner before him. And so repentance uh, is a change of mind. I used to think I was an okay, good old boy. Now I know that uh, I need to go by God's standard. I used to think salvation would have to include my work somehow. Now I know I'm saved as an act of grace from God alone. I used to think Jesus was one religious option, our God, other sides of the world have another God. Now I know He's the, whether you live in America or India, He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. We have put a yield sign. And one thing that's interesting to me is we all know we're supposed to repent and believe, right? Let me ask you this. How many times does the word repent occur in the letters of instruction that the apostles give? Romans to uh, um, before Revelation begins. It doesn't. Hebrews talks about not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, right? So what am I saying here? I'm saying that Repentance is a one-time act that continues to bear fruit and, and you act on it the rest of your life. In other words, it is a forever yielding to the truth of God's Word. It's a yield sign where you say, God, if you say it, that settles it for me. It's repentance, right? And uh, that is such a front-end thing for Christians that the letters don't waste any time really telling you to repent again. You're supposed to be so settled in your mind that it's His way instead of my way. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. He's boss. He says it, I say, yes, boss, right? I like that. Um, a willingness to yield. Jesus modeled it for us when He said, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, the cup of suffering, the cup of wrath, uh, do sins, right? In the garden there, He prayed three times. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was modeling for us their yieldedness. And if you're yielded and teachable, Sometimes that yielding will be to your spouse in the Lord. Sometimes that yieldedness will be to uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it'll show up when you're on a mission trip and everybody's tired and everybody's just grouchy and stuff. And, and, and you'll, you'll yield in that moment afresh because the Lord has a hold of you. Same things happen on disaster relief trips and things where everybody's, oh my goodness, you know, um, tired and wore out. And the Holy Spirit will just say, okay, this is a moment of yielding. It doesn't really matter where we eat tonight. Danny, you got to go to Whataburger or every other meal. Now we're going to do this uh, taco thing that you don't want to do, but they're doing, you know, and stuff. And so there'll be that yieldedness. It's a Christian virtue. It's part one of the things that show we're on course. Well, he says, full of mercy. That's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, 
Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, and full of good fruits. So notice the contrast. Wisdom from below leads to every evil thing, but wisdom from above leads to a harvest of righteous deeds. Um, And so it will be seen in you living the kind of life that's yielded to God, a blessing to others. And um, these will be deeds done without partiality. In other words, you won't do them just for people that can benefit you by receiving the deed. He's already told us in James 2, do these kind of deeds for people that can't pay you back. Jesus said when you throw a party, don't throw it for people that can uh, fund everything you got going, but make sure you invite some people that are, uh, you know, just can't do a thing for you in the physical sense, but that's the kind of party Jesus throws and has us throw as well. Deeds done not to get something in return, but done because we love Jesus so much, we view deeds done for others as acts of adoration. He finishes it up in verse 18. And it's almost like this is his purpose statement. This is what he's looking for through the first three chapters. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What an apt word for our time right now. Uh, Our world is in turmoil for lots of reasons. People are dividing up issue by issue about where they stand in those things. And um, they uh, constantly are telling you what they think. And uh, we need more people that will step back and become peacemakers in all these different situations for the Lord, pointing people to Jesus with that calming presence that He gives. Jesus said, Wisdom is known by her children, by her deeds. Um, Righteousness flourishes in a climate of spiritual peace. Pastor James wants to see more of heaven on earth, and he knows that as his people are displaced and in this place and that place, they're going to be fretful, they're going to be fearing, they're going to be distracted. Um, And he basically gives them these wonderful words uh, about how what they need to be thinking is, maybe God has put me right in the middle of these turbulent waters uh, to help uh, be a calming force on the ship, whether the ship goes down or not, you know. Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.